samples for the Solomon Islands project. And I'll leave it back here for you to read it, but I wanted to share with you that, uh, of course, there was, I think, how many, three teams, I think? Yeah, it was three different teams that, you know, one team went in, and they left, and the next one came in, and they ended up distributing 15,500 Bibles to 46 different schools while they were there. And in one of the schools, he says the headmaster of the school stood up and said, America is a great superpower, and they used that power to give us freedom. But today they have come to give us the real superpower, which is the scriptures. And then they said in another school, they had been, that's the, the, the school there testified that they had been praying for over a year that God would supply each student with his own copy of, of God's word. And so when the teacher stood up and held the Bibles up, he says, you, you know, you've answered that prayer. So they were very pleased with that. And there's some pictures in here about it. I'll post that if anybody wants to take a look at those later then, or read that. You'd be welcome to it. It's a little further update than what I gave there. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 4. John was back there at my office earlier going like this in the doorway. He said, I'm trying to get some more of the chili smell in there, he says, so you won't preach so long. (laughs) I said, well, I think it's going to work because I was smelling it from the first time I got in there. um, Bob and Mary were already here, and they had their pot of chili in there, and I smelled it when I walked in, and there comes Ava. Oh, Ava. Yeah. She's growing. I mean, she's look how long she is. Yeah. She's a doll. Yeah. Okay. That's enough of that. Stay in that room. Shut the door. Okay. Well, it's a long chapter uh, section, I should say, here in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, but it won't be... uh, it, it, this one, you know, it moves along pretty well. So hopefully we won't take too awful long here today. But of course, as with all the Word of God, it is an important important part of God's Word. So let's read uh, verses 6 through 16. And we're going to do today what the Scripture says. Of course, we've already done it, and we do it every Sunday, but we're going to continue on here. Uh, He says, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith, that is, the words of the faith, and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. 
These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, and that is public reading of scriptures, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And it's well seen here in this passage that you know, Paul's just continuing, uh, continuing on with his exhortation or encouragement to Timothy about holding the course, staying true to God's word. Don't allow these myths and fables to distract you, but to maintain a steady course. And if you do, the outcome will be, as it says in verse 16, he says, you'll save thyself and them that hear thee. And so they are is important words. It has an important outcome. And to turn away from them or neglect them or get distracted by other things, uh, you know, is going to result in a negative consequence and not a positive outcome. So when Paul then was writing to Timothy, you know, we saw here in these first five verses uh, talking about what was to happen in the latter times and this departure from the faith. This matter of being caught up in the seductive teaching of the devils. And two of those things he mentions very specifically. Marriage and food. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Two such things would go together. (laughs) But they kind of belong, don't they? Marriage and food. Forbidding to marry and forbidding certain things. Foods. Where... As Paul says, everything that God has created is good and it's not to be refused or rejected. Rather, it's to be received with thanksgiving. And so then in verse 6, he says, concerning all these things, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things. You know, it's an, and it's an interesting phrase there, and I mean, To put in remembrance is okay. It's a good way to say it. I mean, that's what it does. But he says, if you'll just lay these things before the brethren, continue to teach on them. Continue to talk about them. Continue to remind them about these things. And if you do it, he says, you will be a good servant. Our translation there says minister, It's not talking about the office or the position, you know, minister, but it's talking about what he does as a servant of Jesus Christ. So if you do these things and you're faithful to do them, you'll be a good servant in that sense of the word. And it's also good in the sense of not something intrinsically good, but something that is good in the sense of it's noble or beautiful, or excellent, 
those kinds of terms describing what he's, you know, his conduct, his activity as a servant of Jesus Christ and what he teaches, what he maintains in his public ministry when the saints of God meet together. And you remember that's what they did at Ephesus. This is where Timothy was up there in Asia Minor in one of those seven churches mentioned in Revelation. And Timothy had been left there with a specific task in ministering at that church. And so when those believers came together, this was what Timothy was to do week in, week out, give attention to these things. Nourished up, reared up or trained up or educated. Nourished is a good thing. It expresses it very, expresses it very well. Nourished, having your soul strengthened and nourished in the words of the faith. And there is the article there. It's the content of doctrine that the Bible teaches and that we try to remain faithful to here. Nourished up in these things. And then he says not only that, and of good doctrine or good teaching. You know, you could teach the Bible and teach lots of things about the Bible and really never get to the teaching of the Bible. And quite frankly, that goes on all the time. That's why you hear testimonies of people that say, well, I've been in church for 40 years. I've never heard anything about that, about the kingdom, about a judgment seat, about losing my rewards, about a millennium. Well, I've never heard any of that stuff. I, I, don't, that, I don't see how what you're saying could be true. Why, if what you're saying is true, why wouldn't they have taught me that in Bible college or seminary? But it doesn't happen, does it? Not always. Not in every church. Not in every school. So it's good teaching. Teaching that remains focused on the message of the scriptures. It, everything that is taught from the scriptures must be in harmony with the whole picture from Genesis to Revelation. You cannot isolate one passage or one portion and just focus on that. You then end up with a very skewed picture of the Bible. You know, I guess we've all heard the stories from, I would like to say years ago, it may be still going on today, how people developed this great negative image of God because all they hear about is the judgment of God. And somebody, you know, so well-meaning preacher trying to put the fear of God in his congregation and not ever expressing the things that the Bible teaches about the love of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God and all of those other positive attributes that the scriptures talk about. This last phrase there, he says, concerning Timothy, he says, whereunto thou hast attained, you know, doesn't fully express what is there or really give us quite the meaning there. Almost every other translation I, I looked at gave something like 
um, whereunto thou hast fully or carefully followed. Or literally what it means is you've kept close to it. And that's what he was commending Timothy about here. Timothy, you have been faithful to keep close to or to fully hold or adhere to or follow after good doctrine and the words of the faith. And so that was a good thing for Timothy. And I would like the Lord to say that about me someday, that you held fast to what my message was all about. Well, he goes on the negative and says, contrary to that, refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Do you remember back in chapter 1, and Paul's initial exhortation to Timothy, he said over there in uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. You know, it was, a, it was Timothy's responsibility as an overseer, as a bishop, to make sure that what was taught when the body of believers assembled together, adhered to, and was faithful to what was here in the scriptures. Now, at that point in time, you know, they had this much, the Old Testament, and then they would have had a few of the New Testament letters, maybe even... Um, some of the Gospels would have been even written by then. Some of Paul's other letters were in circulation. So what they had, Timothy was to adhere to and remain faithful to. You remember when, in the book of Acts, and we won't turn there, but you remember when Paul uh, went into one of the synagogues uh, one Sabbath, and the synagogue ruler asked him, you know, do you have anything, to, you know, any word of exhortation? If you do, speak up. So Paul stood up, you know, and he spoke that Sabbath, and then he hung around and spoke on the next Sabbath. When congregations assembled together, others were frequently given opportunity to speak, especially if they were uh, someone trained in the scriptures like Paul was. And um, it fell upon Timothy, though, to be careful that what he allowed to be taught or spoken from the pulpit, as it were, they didn't have a pulpit, they met in homes, but it was true to God's word. And so what happened frequently, you remember, the oftentimes they were, uh, he admonished them concerning the Judaizers. And they're wanting to bring back in elements of the law into the teaching of New Testament Christianity. And they would go, remember, Paul frequently went back and made sure they understood that it is not your genealogy that guarantees you a place in the coming messianic kingdom or the messianic rule. But that's what they were, many were holding to. That's what they trusted in, our father Abraham. A 
and they maintained meticulous genealogical records so that they could prove what tribe they were from and their lineage all the way back to Abraham. You remember when they came back from Babylon during Ezra and Nehemiah's day? Do you remember that some, and they listed their names there, uh, they couldn't prove what tribe they were from. That was a devastating thing to them. So these, these people here, you know, people who had received Christ in the mix here, in the assembly, when they would stand to give a word of exhortation, as it were, Timothy was to make sure they didn't get off track on old wives' fables, profane things, endless genealogies, and all of this other stuff, he says, that didn't, in our, in our way of speaking, didn't mount to a hill of beans. It distracts from the truth. So, he tells him there, exercise thyself unto godliness, or train yourself, discipline yourself, rather, to godliness. Why? Because he says bodily exercise or bodily discipline profits little. Just a little bit. It has a measure of benefit. Now, you've probably heard and understand that this word concerning exercise is, is uh, the word where we get our English word, gymnasium and gymnast, and so on. And it was a person that practiced bodily exercise, lifted weights, ran, trained. And most frequently, that's how this analogy is given here. And the application is made as a comparison between physical exercise and the little bit of profit that it brings as opposed to the godly discipline and the godliness that it brings, the spiritual exercise. But you know, there's another way you could actually look at that. Bodily exercise, or if you think in terms of an athlete who practices discipline, they practiced the kinds of things that are talked about there in verse 3. Forbidding to marry and abstaining from certain kinds of foods. In other words, they applied to themselves certain disciplinary measures that they felt brought them more godliness. And Timothy says, those things may have a little bit of benefit, a little bit of profit, but the real profit comes from spiritual discipline. And you know how many times do we see in the New Testament over and over we see this principle uh, brought to light between what when we focus on the visible and the external as opposed to the invisible and the spiritual. And we see that constantly throughout the scriptures. Focusing on it's not something we can lay our hands on. But people feel in control when they can give up some things, discipline their bodies in such a way 
that they feel like they're profiting themselves towards godliness. Now, is there profit in that? There certainly is. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, there, I keep under my body. And he did so in case he was disapproved or rejected, disqualified from the race. And he didn't want to do that. And we have another athletic imagery there. So it, it is not that it's not without any benefit whatsoever. And the profit for it then is, is it, it has promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And the word for life there is this familiar word. We should be familiar with it now, zoe. Not the word bios or the Greek word way to say it would be bios, but where we get our word biology. It's not the word for life, suke, which is translated life in the New Testament, but it's the word zoe. Zoe is a higher life principle that we accrue to ourselves through Jesus Christ. And we profit from that life right now in the present life through our adherence to and our fidelity to the Scriptures, being faithful to the Lord and so on. But it's also in every single instance in the New Testament that I've ever discovered, it, it's always the kind of life described in the millennium. It is the kind of life that we will experience there. And it has, I, I, some express it as God's kind of life because it's the word that describes the life that God possesses. And we will experience that quality of life during the millennial rule. Consequently, some of the references in the New Testament that talk about if we don't experience that life, the consequences we experience death. It's not a physical death he's talking about. He's talking about the failure to attain to or acquire that quality of life that we can possess during the millennial kingdom. So when when you know when Paul's writing these things to Timothy, you know, I I can assure you they understood exactly what Paul was talking about. Timothy knew exactly what Paul was referring to. The promise of the life that now is and that which is yet to come. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 9, it's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. This is something worth paying attention to, is what he's telling us. Consequently, then he goes on. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. The living God. who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And that tells us something there about the uniqueness and the separateness of the body of believers, especially of those that believe. There is a special application of God's word to those that believe. There's something else for those that are under that, what theologians would call the common grace that God extends to all men simply because he's the creator and he's good to all. And he sends the rain on the just and the unjust, both. 
But there's something here, especially of those that believe. And so he says again, almost like a repeat, these things command and teach. Well, in view of Timothy's age, he says, let no man despise thy youth. Now, the word youth there, that applied to anybody, could be 40 and under, would have been considered a youth. Most figure Timothy was at least between the ages of 30 and 40 and probably maybe closer to 35 to 40, somewhere along in there. But the, and of course, you know that the term elder means exactly what it says, an older person, but it also has application to uh, the quality of a person who was an older person. And when he's talking about this here, he's trying to tell Timothy that there's a, you know, the, the respect that went with an older, more mature having been through the ropes of life, as it were, person, there was a way for Timothy to overcome that and not be intimidated by those who were older than him, and that was by his own manner of life. He said, be thou an example of the believers. And so this goes back to apply to that illustration I've given you several times in the past with the little track I have at home. It says, which is entitled, Others May, You Cannot. And it falls upon me in my youth here, compared to some, that I'm, <laughs> I must be an example. And he tells them in what way? In word, in conversation, and that's in our, uh, in our manner of life and the way you conduct your life and how you live, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, in all of these things, in the realm of, of which these things deal with, purity, moral purity, lifestyle purity, and so on. Till I come, he says... And Paul had attend, uh, intended to meet up with Timothy in Ephesus. And he says, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Now, in the Greek text, there's an article before each one of these. So it would read like this. Give attendance to the reading, to the exhortation, and to the doctrine. And that's laying specific emphasis on each one to the reading, the public reading of God's word. That little phrase, give attendance, of course it translates one Greek word, a compound word, but it means to, um, it's, how am I going to read off here? Several ways this is translated because it was very interesting. Some, the King James, the Geneva and the bishops and the Israeli authorized version all say give attendance. Now, of course, one way you can get a clue here is just look at the word uh, attend in, in attendance. And we use that word most often to mean, you know, like, did you attend church today? Were you there? But if you think of it in the uh, figurative sense, it means did you give attention to going to church? And that's the idea that you have here with give attendance to. 
did you give attention to or attend to the teaching? And that's what he's admonishing to me about Timothy about is give attention to teaching. Youngs and Rotherham, the concordant literal version, the American Standard all say give heed to teaching. Uh, Weymouth says bestow your attention. Sawyer says attend. So does the literal uh, translation and the diaglot and the RV. The modern King James and the Murdoch say be diligent. Noyes says give attention to or pay attention to teaching. The uh, International Standard Version says give your full concentration to teaching. The English Standard Version says devote yourself to teaching. And then Darby says give thyself to teaching. Now, another way we might more completely understand what he's talking about here and, and the, the insistence on a mindset that is devoted to public reading of the Bible is this was also used as a nautical term. And it, the term was, was that you set your course and you maintain the course of the ship. So it's like you had a a course you had to set to arrive at a certain spot on the mainland and you concentrated on that. You devoted yourself to that. You gave attention to that or you, you paid heed to that so that you could arrive at where you were going to. And that's what he's talking about us here, you know, for us. Pay attention to reading, to exhortation and doctrine. Turn with me to a few pages over to Hebrews chapter 7. And I want to give you another place where this is uh, used in the scriptures that I think is uh, expressive of the idea here a little bit also, all in a little bit different vein. Over in chapter 7, um, we're talking about the, the uh, superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over their Aaronic priesthood. So you remember Melchizedek and his priesthood, and then you had the priesthood uh, that God gave to Israel. And in pointing out the differences and why this one was superior, he says down in verse 12, he says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the priesthood being changed, that is, to that of Melchizedek. And, of course, of which uh, ultimately here is pointing to Christ over Aaron. And Christ's priesthood coming from the tribe of Judah, a whole different tribe than that of Levi. And then in verse 13 he says, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. In other words, you know, it doesn't quite fit if you say pay heed or give attention to at the altar except for the idea that they were devoted. And that last translation I gave you, Darby, or uh, excuse me, the ESV says, devote yourself to teaching. Well, he's talking about those who had devoted themselves to the altar. They had dedicated themselves, as it were. And so you have the same idea here on these three things that we are to be focused upon when we meet together the public reading of the scriptures, 
to exhortation. Now, of course, he earlier had talked about good teaching up here, good doctrine, good teaching. Exhortation has to do with the encouragement to you and I to apply what we've been taught and understand and practice it in our life. And then the other thing is to doctrine or teaching. You know, if we if you get away from these three things, you know, then we've gotten away from the central core of what a minister's or a servant of Jesus Christ, an overseer, the teacher in the assembly, their responsibility is. As a matter of fact, he goes on in verse 14 to remind Timothy, neglect not the gift that is in thee. Neglect not. Don't take it lightly or disregard it. Don't be careless about the gift that is in thee, Timothy. Turn back to Matthew 22 for a second. You remember Matthew 22, the first 13, 14 verses there have to do with the uh, marriage feast that was being held for the king's son and the issues that took place when they got there. One came in not having the proper clothing on. But prior to that, you remember they went out inviting men to come to the wedding feast and they began to make excuses. And in verse 5, notice what he says there, but they made light of it that's the same word here they disregarded it they neglected it they were careless about this invitation and it says they went their ways one to his farm another to his merchandise and then if you would turn over to hebrews chapter 8 and verse 9 there's another expression there the same same word And he says there in verse uh, 8, he says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. So you see the contrast here. In the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I... Regarded them not, saith the Lord. Now, of course, here the good expression would be, I disregarded them. And you remember from Psalm 95 what happened. You know, he's, and, and if you go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, he says, They're not going to enter into my rest. That's what he means. When I disregarded them, they would not be allowed to enter into his rest. And so, That's what he's telling Timothy here regarding this gift that is in him. Don't take it lightly, Timothy. Take it seriously. Be careful about it. The gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The presbytery there, the plural, is the body of elders or the council of elders that had laid hands on Timothy. And, of course, they obviously saw approval in Timothy in laying hands on him and giving him this responsibility of being an overseer or a bishop in Ephesus. 
He admonishes him to meditate upon these things, to care for or attend to these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. That is, your, your progress, your advancement might appear to all. And to take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Take heed unto thyself. It fell upon Timothy to take heed to his own self. That is, to pay attention to himself, to maintain this kind of quality of lifestyle that would permit him and allow him to do this great work of being an overseer. And to the doctrine, take heed to that also. That's a reminder again. Continue in them. Continue in them. And continue in them because if you stay in them, he says, in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now, he's talking about the larger expression of that word save. It's not the very narrow understanding or definition, you know, that we understand when we receive Christ and the gospel and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking in such a narrow sense there. He's talking in that broader sense in which when one has lived a life of fidelity and loyalty and faithfulness to the scriptures and to his Lord and master, Jesus Christ, that they would experience the fullness of that salvation in that coming day. If you, you know, another expression of that, look over in Hebrews chapter 11. And I think we'll see another, another way of looking at it, as it were, to save yourself. Concerning these who had practiced this faith that had been spoken about earlier in the chapter and also at the end of chapter 10, uh, you know, he mentions uh, several people, uh, Abel and uh, Enoch and so on, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. And he says down there then in verse 13, these all died in faith. Timothy was admonished to continue in these things. And of course, by implication, and the tense of the verb there, all the way to the end of his life. There's never a place where he could let up. And never a place here given where he could slack off. Stay in them all the way. And do what these saints here did all the way to the day of their death. They died in faith, not having received the promises, not yet, but having seen them afar off. They didn't have them, but they did see them. They saw them afar off, and they knew that though those promises were far off out in the future, they knew and understood that if they lived by faith, right up to the day of their death, 
they knew there was something out there in the future for them yet, a fulfillment of those promises, something that would accrue to them because they were faithful and loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling Timothy and you and I. If Timothy, as a good servant of Jesus Christ, would be faithful to continue teaching these things, practicing these these things, living these things, then there would be a future salvation both for yourself and for them that hear you. And that's a strong word of encouragement to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word to study it, to know the truths that are expressed there, and to comprehend such things as you gave Timothy, to know that your message here was just as consistent with Timothy as it was when you wrote, uh, when T- uh, Paul wrote those letters to the churches like Ephesus and, and uh, Colossae and so on, and to other individuals like Philemon, when he ministered all throughout his missionary journeys, the message was one and the same. And how we thank you for the unity and the harmony of your word. We ask, Father, that you would continue to enlighten our hearts, to strengthen us in the inward man, that we would be uh, diligent, that we would be fervent about our faith, that we would be... uh, constantly loyal, and that we would seek to become strong in those things that you've given to us that might um, help us to continue on day by day with renewed strength in our inner man. We thank you for the mercy and the grace that you give to us to do those very things. And Lord, we want to be very, very careful to give you all the thanks and the praise because you've you've included us. You have chosen us. And I pray, Father, that we would treasure those things in our own heart that you've given us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.